Today we have our second narco author, Peter Walsh, author of Drug War, The Secret History. And I read Peter's book, Cocky, years ago. So today we will be bringing you some stories from the drug lords of the UK. And all of Peter's links is a prolific author. How many books now? How many have I written? Gosh, uh, at least half a dozen, but I've published probably about 70 of other people's books as well. Wow. Yeah. Half a dozen plus 70 of other people's books. So all the links for Peter will be in the description box. I urge you to go down and support his work. Thank you very much for coming on, Peter. So what led you to write about Curtis Warren? I was working as a journalist at the time when uh, Warren was arrested in Holland. So that'd be about 1996. And um, the the gang that he was wrapped up with had um, some connections to Manchester, which was where I was working. So I was sent over to cover the trial in The Hague, his trial, and met a couple of pals there who were fellow journalists who were covering it for, for other outlets. And I think it came about, I think we had a discussion in the bar one evening and uh, about how, how fascinating the story was, not just of that trial, but of his past and also the, the story of the Liverpool drugs trade. And um, somebody said it would be a great idea for a book and that's where it came from, really. So we've got a big American audience. A lot of them perhaps have never heard of Curtis Warren. So what was his story then? Why did he end up in court that day? Warren's a really interesting figure in the the British drugs trade um, in that he was one of the first people and certainly the biggest of his time to deal in all of the different kinds of illegal drugs. So prior to Warren's rise in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, you would have gangs who smuggled cannabis, you would have um, some gangs who specialised in smuggling or distributing heroin, likewise cocaine, likewise uh, amphetamine. But it was very unusual to find one person who was um, prominent in all of these different drug markets. Um, Warren came from a relatively poor background. Was uh, he out of Toxteth? He was out of Toxteth in Liverpool. So I went to um, Liverpool Uni, we were like on the border of Toxteth, the business studies yeah, area. Yeah. That was um, late 80s, early yeah. 90s. That was probably when he was doing his thing. Yeah, it? yeah. So yeah. again, for you US listeners, that's an area with a high sort of ethnic minority content. You know, it's the kind of um, black area, black look of black black and mixed race families in Toxed Liverpool. riots. Yeah, a lot of them of a, of a West Indian or Afro-Caribbean background. Um, uh, it'd been a, a deprived area. They'd had very serious riots in the early 1980s, a lot of um, discrimination, um, a lot of, um, uh, you know, really bad attitude towards the police and vice versa. And um, Warren came from that sort of that sort of background, and um, became involved in the drug trade at a high level um, through some personal relationships that he formed at the end of the 1980s. The end of the 80s was interesting because we'd had this explosion of, of club drugs in the UK. You know, ecstasy had come along, the acid house scene, the rave scene, and it had introduced to drugs a whole market of people who weren't typical, certainly weren't criminals. These, these were 
ordinary young men and women who wanted to go out the weekend and enjoy themselves. I was one of them. You were one of them. And many of them in their normal course of their lives would, would not have been involved in illicit illegal activity. But through the rave scene and their exposure to ecstasy, which kind of enhanced their experience of, of clubbing, they, they became a kind of criminal market, although they weren't, by any stretch of the imagination, the sort of people you would typify as criminal. And this huge market kind of opened up the drugs trade, uh, and it opened up entry by people who were perhaps from a, from a tougher background. Maybe they were working the doors on those clubs. Maybe they just sensed an opportunity. Um, a lot of the early raves in the UK were illegal, so they were run by people from the criminal fraternity um, by definition. And um, I think the kind of acceptance over a number of years of ecstasy within that scene then also paved the way for the cocaine market, which became hugely important in the UK in the 90s. So Warren would be one of the people who benefited, if you like, from that market expansion. Right place, right time, or if you like, wrong place, wrong time, however you want to see it. But what was really interesting about him was that he seemed um, by design to want to maximise his profits from this from this drug trade. And the way that he did that was to try to buy his drugs as close to the source of production as possible. So uh, in cannabis, that, that meant Morocco, which is where a lot of the British um, hashish in particular came from. In cocaine, that meant Colombia. So it meant going to Colombia or sending people to Colombia and dealing directly with the cartels. And in heroin, it meant the Turks, who controlled a lot, the majority of the heroin trade. Serious players, then. Serious players, but I mean, how the, does the lad from Liverpool just connect with those? Nerve, bottle, you know, a certain uh, aptitude as well, I suppose. Um, but the, I, I think crucial to a lot of that is the importance of uh, the Netherlands in the European drugs trade, which is often underrated. Amsterdam, in particular, became it's been called the Wall Street of drugs. It was a place where all of these guys could meet. Um, a very cosmopolitan city. Again, a lot of um, immigrants living there from the West Indies, the Caribbean, the, the Dutch West Indies, Antilles, Suriname, places like that. All areas which were very inf important in the cocaine trade. A big Turkish population. Again, a lot of them involved in the heroin trade. Um, a, a history of involvement in the cannabis trade. And also a history of the manufacture of um, drugs such as amphetamine and ecstasy. So that was a place where you could start to make these connections. Now, how far you then went down the chain was kind of up to you and the relationships that you could strike with these people. A lot of drug dealers were happy just buying their drugs in Amsterdam. You'd pay a lot more for that, and then you'd have to get it into the UK and then sell it. What Warren and his mob did was that they went to the sources where you could buy it even cheaper, much cheaper. So, so that's go to the... Those countries, did they? If you bought your cocaine in South America, for example, you might pay two or two or three thousand pounds a kilo for wow. coke. Wow! Your problem then is you've, you're responsible for trans. You've got to get it to Europe. You're responsible for the transport. If you bought it in Europe, in Amsterdam, you might be paying maybe eighteen, twenty thousand a kilo. So it's it's almost multiplied by a factor of ten. You then have to get it to the UK where you could maybe sell it at that stage maybe for about 35, 40 a kilo to a wholesaler or to a dealer. So obviously, if you if you look at how cheap it is to buy at source, it seems like a great idea. The difficulty and always vital in the drug trade is transportation. 
you can buy it at A, that's that's easy. You can sell it at B, that's easy. How do you get it from A to B without getting caught, without getting ripped off, without dying, without losing it? That is the job. That's why so many people don't go to source. But Warren was happy to do that as much as he could. So he was yeah. a risk taker. He was a risk taker. He was a profit maximizer. And he had around him a group of people who were prepared to do that with him as well. So he was a, he was a, a man manager too, I guess. So would he have sent someone to Colombia as his, you know, on his authority, or would he have gone himself? When he was um, finally arrested and convicted in Holland, he had an emissary there, uh, a guy from the Manchester area called Stephen Mee, um, who's now a, an artist, I believe, and would probably be a great guest for your <laughs> podcast. Um, but Stephen Mee was was representing him in the negotiations um with the Colombians and there were numerous phone conversations between Warren and me speaking in code but these were tapped by the Dutch and there was some of the evidence against him he had certainly been over himself to Venezuela and I think Colombia to meet uh, Colombians himself that was prior to this that was a few years prior so he had formed those links but his, his closest connection was with a Colombian who was resident in Holland called Mario Halley a, a young uh, guy who was representing the cartels in Europe and a lot of his conversations and a lot of the setting up of the deals would have been done in Europe, but with Halley, Halley as the representative of the cartel he was working with. Approximately what year was that? Uh, he'd have met Halley around about 1991. I think Halley already had met some other uh, Liverpool criminals and it was through them that Warren got an introduction. And then they kind of, basically Halley's organisation were making available Un, almost unheard of amounts of coke in, in the UK at that time. So 500 kilos, tonnes, multi-tonnes eventually. I mean, I think there, there was conversations where they were talking about up to 20 or 30 tonnes over a period of time, which at that time in the UK was was not only unheard of, it was almost incomprehensible. I think law enforcement had a very hard time believing that this was genuine when they were told about this. Wow. Yeah, but, it, but it turned so out... So was that was, filtering... Through to the whole of the UK and perhaps even going into Europe as well. That, that's uh, some of some of it would. So the, what the cartel, what the Colombians would do is they would get a, a say they got a shipment. They managed to get a shipment of say two tons, maybe five hundred kilos of that would go to the UK. The rest would go elsewhere: uh, Spain, Italy, Germany, wherever the other big markets were. So they wouldn't be dumping all of that on the UK market. You've always got to be conscious, especially with something like coke you've got to be able to sell it and you want to sell it quickly. So there's no point bringing in 500 kilos and then it's got to sit somewhere for a year because you can't sell it. And every day that goes by and every day that you're trying to sell it, the police or other law enforcement might hear about it. You've got the stash there. So you want to move it quickly, as quickly as you can. By the time Warren and others like him had, had sort of made their mark by the mid-90s, the, the UK cocaine trade had grown so much the market had grown so much that there are stories of people bringing in a ton and like selling it within a week and literally I know a guy who was part of a consortium in South London brought in over a ton and there was one guy in South London who would turn up every day with a carrier bag full of money he'd sold another 10 or 20 or 30 kilos he would literally have millions of pounds in Marks and Spencer's plastic bags which he would dump down you go and sell the next lot and they cleared the whole lot in a week wow yeah. i find this absolutely fascinating because i've written several books about escobar i've written yes. a book about the cali cartel yeah. so escobar dies in the early 90s yeah. colombia's divided into all these cartels but cali 
kind of becomes the dominant one, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. So would Curtis would he have had to have a relationship with Callie? Was that necessarily the right. case? Well, now the guy that um, the Dutch identified that he was um, dealing with, or, or the head of the organisation that he was dealing with, was from the North Valley, which is kind oh, of yeah. kind of linked linked to Cali. Yeah. And a lot of these um, cartels, they're not one solid group. They're kind of a, a loose collection, kind of a consortium, if you like, who often act together. So um, the U.S. prosecutors kind of defined cartel, <coughs> didn't they, to trying to um, um, make it like. The Medellin cartel is these people. Yes. But it, that's a very narrow definition. It's, isn't it's it? very narrow. I mean, even the different ports like Barranquilla, Cartagena, where a lot of the cocaine would be shipped from by sea, they would have their own cartels who would handle that side of it. So you'd have a, a Barranquilla cartel whose speciality would be shipping. So someone like Cali might pay the Barranquilla cartel or whoever to run the docks, uh, make sure that their shipments got through they would take a cut of that or they might have some of their own drugs on the shipment as a kind of a way of paying them for that. So it was always quite complex. Um, one of the things I wanted to do when I started researching drug war was to try to find these connections between people like Escobar, um, the Rod Rodriguez or Huela brothers, um, the Mejia Munera twins and the British market. Can you actually draw a line from there to here? <laughs> That's it, what I'm trying to do in my head right now. It's very, very difficult to do. Yeah. You can in the end. And by the 90s, by the late 90s, it was actually possible mm. to do that. I, I, it'd be very difficult to draw a, a straight line from, say, the, the leaders of the Cali cartel to uh, a drug wholesaler in London in the early 90s. But by the late 90s, I think... Law enforcement had caught up quite a bit and you could actually draw those lines. So someone, there was a very famous cocaine importer in the UK in, in London called Brian Wright in the late 90s, uh, Irish extraction, um, very big in the horse racing world. In fact, at, at one time he, he almost took over horse racing in terms of the amount of corruption that he he had jockeys on the payroll he nobbled racehorses he was an enormous gambler but of course he had his fingers on the scales when he was gambling because of what he'd done in the trade but he um you can trace a direct link um from right to uh, an actual cartel in colombia who had jungle labs had a jungle army that kind of protected them how they put the stuff together uh, how they, you know, um, worked on the cocaine to, to to purify it, make the coca leaf into coca paste and then coke, and then how it actually got shipped to the UK. And you can see the actual connections. That was just becoming possible, I think, round about the time of the Curtis Warren's trial in the mid-90s. It was just becoming possible to do that. Before that, it was very hard to draw those connections. Law enforcement wasn't joined up in the way that the drug smugglers were. The smugglers are often running slightly ahead of in the whole of the drug trade. The whole of the history of it, you, it's a game of catch up from law enforcement, as you you can imagine. The smugglers are Neil Woods always called, one step ahead. Neil yeah. Woods called it an arms race. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's one in which law enforcement is always behind. And and it's one he, Neil Woods said in which the drug traffickers become increasingly violent and more sophisticated technologically. And it just creates chaos all over the world. Yeah, yeah. You've you've seen that that violence in particular is one of the things I chart, and you can see it quite clearly. It, it's it's kind of a, a little bit of a myth uh, that the '60s and the early '70s was a kind of nirvana of peace and love in the drugs trade, but compared to what came later, it actually was. It actually yeah. was a uh, you know it's a pretty 
sort of gentle um adventurous kind of high spirited sort of world not a very not a crude cold nasty sort of world so let me just recap then so we're talking about the story of curtis warren out of talk stuff young man he's got the balls to make connections with source countries and the source country we're focused on right now is colombia Many of you have seen Narcos. Escobar died in the shootout early 90s. After Escobar fell, Don Berner became the kingpin of Medellin. The Arjuela brothers were the dominant two in the Cali cartel. There was also Pacho and what was the other guy's name? Uh, I can say uh, Santa Cruz Londonio, I think. Yeah, Chepe. Chepe. So that was Cali. Then you've got the Castaño brothers, which we don't hear much about at all. Yeah. But they were massive. They were backed by the army because they were right-wing paramilitary leaders. And then you've got the guerrilla groups as well. They're competing yeah. to uh, finance their activity yeah. Yeah. through coke as well. So, so the, the crew you've not mentioned, and it was a story which I didn't know about until I um, sort of got deeply into the research for the book, was a pair of twins called the Mejia Munera uh, brothers and they were known as Los Melisos the twins in Colombia and they had originally worked for Cali they used to guard their boat shipments at sea so they would if the, if the Cali had a stack of coke on a merchant ship crossing the Atlantic or crossing the Caribbean to go to a, a an onward shipment point uh, one of the Melisas would, would be on board uh, with heavy armament as protection. If anything went wrong, his job was to open up and start shooting people. Wow. So these were these were tough guys. Um, they don't look like the the sort of old established Cali guys. Were sort of all like old ma- by this time were becoming sort of mafiosi. These were young guys, trendy combat gear, uh, designer jeans, designer shades. Um, you know, tattoos. Um, they look like uh, you know they're like the Red Hot Chili Peppers if you saw these guys. But um, like those hit men in Breaking Bad, the that's two right. brothers were they? Are tw- they twins? Yeah. So the twins. They were based on. They, them. they may well have been because yeah. the, the twins, as Cali uh, fell um, due to action by the Americans largely, and they had this kingpin strategy to take out Escobar was the first who they killed, and then they took out the Ochoas, they took out Cali, they took out others. It was the the smaller, what they called the baby cartels, that that kind of uh, filled the space. And the Mechia Muneras were were key in this. And they started shipping tons to Europe. So by then, the American market was reaching saturation level. Um, You could get more money in Europe. And they struck up an alliance with um, a group of corrupt Greek ship owners and they basically bought or hired a fleet of merchant ships worth millions and millions. I mean, these were legitimate, huge merchant vessels and they would hide their drugs inside the ship. So not in a container, not in luggage, not in the usual. They would actually build concealments inside the superstructure of the ships. So these were extremely difficult to to find. Um, They would sail these ships typically to somewhere off the coast of Spain and the drugs would be transferred often to the Galicians in uh, in northern Spain who were the expert smugglers on the Spanish coast. Fast boats into into where the, all the caves and coves on the Galician <laughs> coastline, and then from there dispersed to whichever market. A lot of it to the UK. 
So these guys were absolutely crucial and they were moving a tonnage to Europe, which nobody had seen before. Um, so uh, eventually the, the Brits got onto them, uh, British customs, and they started a huge multinational operation, which was ultimately known as Operation Journey, which involved the Americans, the Italians, the Albanians, the Greeks, uh, the Dutch, um, and they tracked this uh, cartel. I'm not sure what the total seizures were. In, I can't remember offhand. It was over 20 tonnes. But this group had probably smuggled more than 40 tonnes. Uh, they ultimately had they had a huge staging post on the Orinoco Delta in Venezuela with a lab um, landing strip for aircraft, um, numerous uh, super-fast um, speedboats to run the gear out to the ships. Um at the, the climax of Journey, there was a huge multinational operation, loads of arrests, but the twins twins escaped. Really? They, they escaped, and in the sort of clean-up operation, the Dutch raided an apartment in, I think, Bogota, and inside the walls of the apartment was $35 million cash. Wow. Um, which I don't think is the biggest cash seizure ever. I think there was a Mexican drug cartel one not long after in America, which was even bigger. Yeah. But thirty-five million. So that was that was some of their profits from the U.S. market. So Good you can grief. see how much they were making. The twins disappeared to the border area with Venezuela and basically started a private army in league with the Castaños, who you've mentioned, the right-wing um, sort of anti-guerrilla group, who had the backing of a lot of government politicians. They started this private army, terrorised the area, but it was all, in their case, it was not political. It was to maintain their drugs um, their drugs pipeline, which they did until one of them was shot dead in 2008. His brother was arrested. Uh, Miguel, subsequently extradited to the States, has just finished a sentence in the States, got a surprisingly lenient sentence for somebody who'd smuggled um, uh, tonnes and tonnes of coke, to the States. I think he was released after about 12 years and he's currently awaiting extradition back to Colombia. Because those guys had the backing, didn't they, of the States and the Colombian yeah. government because yeah. they were killing... They said they were killing communists, but they were just going in whole villages and slaughtering everybody, weren't yeah. they? Yeah, they said they were fighting the FARC, the left-wing guerrillas. Yeah. Um, they, some of them, I think, were. Some of them were, you know, sort of collaborations of industrialist businessmen who were fighting against the FARC who'd been trying to tax them or uh, terrorise them in other ways. In the case of the twins, it was pure. It was purely drugs. Uh, they paid the right-wing guerrillas. Uh, they they kind of bought a franchise off them uh, f to to form a paramilitary group, and I think they had two. 200 to 250 men in uniform in the jungle, which they'd basically franchised from the Castaños, and they ran, uh, they ran that organisation, and that was the Los Malisos organisation. And um, they, that was to maintain their pipeline to the, uh, the ports of Colombia and then to ship their coke from there, still predominantly to Europe. So they were, they were a really fascinating group because you can trace their drugs all the way from the source to the streets in the UK and to the people who are buying them over here. So he probably knows some of America's dirty secrets. That's why he got a pass. I think he knows a lot of people's very dirty secrets. Um, yeah, the, the, the policy that the United States had when the twins, when uh, Miguel was arrested 2008, 2009, they took out in that same period, they and the Colombians, <clears throat> Colombian National Police, 
took out about um, maybe 10 of the biggest narcos in Colombia. A lot of them were extradited, and a lot of them have subsequently been released after serving, say, 10 years in prison. Because Don Burner's still over there, isn't Don he? Don Burner's still over there. Now, some of them will not have cut the right deals, and so will not have been released. Some of them will not have been released for the reasons. But if you cut the right deal, even if you had a string of murders to your name, massacres in the case of the twins, um, if you cut the right deal, instead of looking at, you know yourself, the sentences in the United States, you, you can get 100, 150 years, 10 life sentences, whatever. These guys are being released after 10, 12 years. And they've murdered a lot of people. It's very so strange. Up there. Yeah. yeah, it's very yeah, strange. Yeah. yeah. So you mentioned that Curtis, um, you, you, in the book, or through an intermediary, emissary, I think you said, yeah. had a link to the Norte, North Valley Cartel. That's right. So yeah. who were the North Valley Cartel at that point? Um, they would be a kind of a Cali offshoot, but they'd have had their own um, background. They were, I think, probably shipping more to Europe at that time than... So um, Medellin would have been mainly concentrated on the USA. And Cali initially, I think Cali's initial base was in New York, in the market there in the um, sort of early 80s. Um, these newer groups, they were obviously, if they were trying to exploit the American market, they were finding that there were already uh, people doing that. So North Valley were a relatively new group who were looking to expand more um, to Europe. And um, the bosses had already, I think, been doing shipments into Holland, but they hadn't had a direct hookup with um, groups in the UK, particularly the Liverpool groups. And uh, the story goes that they'd in initially made a um, a link with a couple of uh, scousers and they sailed um, several hundred kilos over on a yacht. And that was the first successful. That was before, I think, Warren was directly involved. And um, having, um, you know, achieved that success and proven that the, this method worked, I think they did that again. And then at some stage, Warren got involved and they started talking about <clears throat> bigger amounts. Uh, so again, the key was just working out how to get the get the gear over. And they struck on this new method of hiding it inside ingots of scrap metal. So they'd identified that they they could find a market for scrap metal coming from Latin America to the UK, ingots of aluminium or lead which would be melted down over here and sold. And what they did was they put the cocaine in a, in a metal chamber and then kind of um, moulded the ingot around it. And wow. <laughs> customs found out about this method. They didn't know ex exactly what the method was. There was a shipment of 500 kilos came into the UK they suspected that it was in this particular container full of ingots. They thought initially it was inside the container. So they ripped the container apart and they couldn't find it. So they started to drill into the ingots to see if there was anything inside. You, they were impervious to x-ray, so you couldn't find out if there was anything inside them. And the longest drill bits they had were only, let's say, six or eight inches. And they, <laughs> they, they didn't go in far enough to find the cocaine. No so way. they drilled a few of these ingots. They didn't find anything. They patched them up again and they let them go. And wow. 500 kilos hit the market. Wow. And that's what really made Warren and his organization, that made their name and it made their fortune. Yeah. Um, so I've heard stories because 
you know, I've got friends in Liverpool, friends in Toxteth, and I've heard stories that there was an issue with the Colombians and Curtis's organisation at some point. Right. There was a hitman sent out or something. Is this story true? Uh well, there was a story later. So after Warren had been sent to jail, <clears throat> one of his closest friends, a guy called Colin Smith, was shot dead. Um, and what in, was the in circumstances Liverpool. of that? Well, one of the theories was that it involved um, Colombians. So Warren was in prison. Yes. And one of Warren's guys got assassinated yeah. Yeah. because the business was ongoing while he was in prison. I'm not sure of the circumstances. I, I, I find it quite hard to believe the, the the sort of story of Colombians sending hitmen over and that kind of thing. That that tends not to happen. If okay. you if you want somebody taken care of in a particular country, you can usually find somebody there to a do local it. Person. Yes, yeah. Um, you know, you send in an outsider. He doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't speak the language. He's you know he's 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 you, you, you've got a record of him coming in and out of the airport. So it's much easier to find somebody else. But it's hard to know because these guys could be you know danger can, can come at them from so many different directions brings to mind barry seal because i wrote a book about him and he said i can, I can i'll see a colombian coming from a mile away yeah. but yeah. they did get him they did get him but that was because yeah. of the yes. feds yeah. made him vulnerable but that's a, that's a good point there's, there's a lot of myths about the drugs world and that's yeah. one of them and if you think about them for a minute they don't stand up to scrutiny i mean one of the other interesting myths about the the drug world certainly in um this doesn't apply to the early days, is that it's it's full of sort of violent people who will, will shoot you as soon as look at you. And we all know today in the stories of the Mexican cartels and the Colombians. In fact, the drugs trade, for most of its recent history, doesn't really operate like that. The people who are good at smuggling drugs are good businessmen. They're entrepreneurs. They're not people who are thugs. They're not people who are going in shoving shotguns in bank managers. That just brings, brings all, heat. That's not the sort of person you want, you know. So certainly in the early days of the UK drug trade, a lot of people who got involved in it were like market traders, they were used car salesmen, they were music promoters, they were people who were used to buying and selling to doing deals, who could deal with customers in a friendly manner, who could build up trust. They weren't broken-nosed, you know, I'll chop your legs off type of guys because that's not what the business needs. Those guys came in later because you needed them for protection, but they're not the guys you want running your business. You want somebody with a business brain. So Yeah, all the people I met were 100% business, all about yeah. business, and violence, murder, mayhem just attracts the police right away. And a, it's it's just, all over. Yeah. Yeah, it's you, all over. you tend to see that more at the the distribution level, don't you? At the street level, yeah, that's where you tend to get turf wars. Foot soldiers peddling yeah. pills, and then not someone doesn't pay, and then yeah. that person goes yeah. sends someone to their yeah. house. It's slightly different. In well, these, that's far removed from well in these the producer bosses. countries we've talked about. It's different because a lot of them are riddled with political strife anyway. So Colombia's had you know a, a sort of de facto civil war for for, for decades. The violence, uh, you know, Turkey uh, with the the Kurds in. Uh, you know the the PKK again. They've had a, there's been a sort of rumbling uh, civil war for years and years. So it, it's different there. The people from the, you know you can you can understand the violence in the background there because it's it's the backdrop to their daily lives. But certainly when it comes from smuggling drugs from A to B, violence shouldn't really come into it unless absolutely necessary. So you've talked about how Curtis got his drugs in then from Colombia. What about the other countries he sourced from? How did he get them in from those? 
So, I mean, the ecstasy would be fairly straightforward. You could buy that. that a lot of that was made in labs in, in Belgium and Holland, um, some of it in Poland, I think. Uh, you, so you just needed a, a means of transport um, to get it in. They were using lorries a lot by this stage. Um, lorries were useful because you could do what they call groupage loads. You could pack a lot of different things on. So, like big container trucks possibly yeah big container trucks um so you could and but sometimes they use coaches you know if they were coach trips school trips uh any any method at all cars school boats trips. schools yeah um and what they would do with the groupage load so so you would have you maybe have a couple of tons of cannabis on board you'd maybe have uh 50 kilos of coke you'd maybe have 50 kilos of heroin you'd maybe have a couple of million ecstasy tabs and they could all go on the same load so would that be in like luggage or would that be in the undercarriage of the vehicle that could be or or it it could be inside a container it could be um so one of his biggest heroin shipments that he was involved in although he was never convicted of this it was britain's biggest heroin seizure at the time that had come on a lorry on what's called the balkan route from turkey uh, across europe over on the ferry uh, into the UK uh, with a you know a, a driver with a legitimate haulage company, but in the base of the truck in the truck bed, they had built these very long um, like drawers, long drawers that pulled out and packed in those was I think it was 180 kilos of cocaine packed in passage packages. Cocaine so, or heroin? Uh, sorry, heroin. That was heroin. Yeah. Now the interesting thing about the Turks is that you you couldn't really do with the Turks what you could do with the Colombians. Uh, go and see them and buy from them at source. The Turks were an interesting, in some ways, the most interesting organised crime group in Europe. Everyone's heard of the Mafia. Very scary how they were portrayed <laughs> in um, Rise of the Foot Soldier. Indeed, yes. <sighs> yeah, yeah. Well, every, everyone's heard of the Mafia. Um, I think if you'd ask any, 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 anybody, they'd say, oh, the biggest organised crime group in the world. The Mafia were customers of the Turks. That's how you need to think about the drugs trade. The Mafia bought from the Turks. The Turks controlled the heroin trade into Europe. And what they liked to do, whereas other groups would like to sell you at source so that then they didn't have any of the transport problem, the Turks liked to control the transport into the country because that they then had control of it. They, you know, that it, they could make sure it got there. They could make sure that there were no leaks or if they were, they knew where they'd come from. So the Turks actually liked to bring the stuff into the UK to the contacts they had in the Turkish communities, particularly in North London. And then, then the Brits would buy it off from, from the UK, so the price was higher. They didn't like the idea of the Brits going to Turkey and trying to buy it at source and arrange the transport themselves. They would have stood out for a start. It would have been, would have been uh, difficult. And Turkey, to an extent, is a surveillance society. They've had three or four military coups in the last however many years. Um, yeah, the police are very corrupt, uh, or, or certainly were. So, you know, Brits going over there trying to do deals would not have been advisable, even someone at Warren's level. Now, it did happen, and Warren probably got as close to them as anybody. But they tended to prefer either to do the deals in Holland, and then you could pick the heroin up there at best, or we'll, we'll bring it all the way to London and then, or, or to the UK and then we, you buy it from us there. But obviously there's, there's price implications all the way along the line for that. So that was his, that was his heroin source, really. What a yeah. skill set Warren must possess. Amazing when you think all these people source. speak different languages 
you know, they're you, different people. You, you don't know. You can't do background checks. Yeah. Uh, you've got to really rely on your own radar. Uh, you know, your sense for danger. Uh, can you smell when a deal's wrong? Can you smell when a contact is wrong? When somebody's an informant? When somebody's not? At some stage, if you're going to be in that business, you've just got to bite the bullet and do the deals. You know? So, researching this book about Warren, then, what mishaps arose in his journey? The, I think, what caused his demise, um, he he got off with um, uh, a huge drug case um, in about 1993 in the UK, which was related to this the the. Um, the successful importation, they had a 500 kilos, but then another importation after that, which was actually taken out. How did uh, they discover that? Um, well, they were onto the method, the ingots. Uh, they they realised they'd, they'd missed the first one. They were onto the second one. Uh, Is that because someone snitched him out from... It, there, there, was, um, there were sources of information, um, but I think... Once they knew about the first lot, the, I think that's right, the, the, the second importation was already at sea. They missed the first one, but then then realised they'd missed it. This is the law enforcement over here. And the other one was already on its way. And maybe they'd have been best advised, um, the criminal organisation, just, just dropping it. But they didn't. They, they kind of sort of persisted with it while trying to be as cautious as they could. Um that was seized. Um, Warren wasn't caught hands-on with the drugs. He was. He went nowhere near them, but he was arrested. The um, customs and the police thought they had sufficient evidence to charge him and a string of others. Went for trial at Newcastle Crown Court and the charges against Warren were thrown out. Did uh, he have a really good lawyer? Uh, I think he did. Uh, I also think that the, um, the investigators had made quite a lot of mistakes. Um, and uh, ultimately, I think only one person was convicted at that trial and he, his conviction was subsequently overturned on appeal. So it was a bit of a disaster. Warren returned uh, to Liverpool and resumed. And then what happened was that we had a gang war in Liverpool, which was um, developed out of the shooting of David Ungie uh, in South Liverpool. And it was quite famous at the time. Do you want to give us that story? Yeah, there was a, a dispute between two two groups, um, which could broadly be characterised as white criminals and black criminals, um, in the south side of Liverpool, and uh, this led to a, an organised fight between two of them, a so-called straightener. Uh, one of them was a guy called David Ungie, Liverpool businessman, a white guy, and one was a guy called Johnny Phillips, who was a, an old um, mate of Warren's, uh, a very tough uh, guy from the Toxteth area. And um, the story goes that, that Ungi won the fight, but in a reprisal, um, the, uh, the Phillips gang had him shot dead. And this sparked a series of tit-for-tat shootings to the stage where the chief constable was forced to deploy armed officers on the streets routinely, which I think was the first time it ever happened on the UK mainland wow, since the war. in Liverpool. <laughs> now, Warren was kind of caught up in this because he was seen to be associated or with the black faction. I don't think, I don't think there's any evidence that Warren had any direct involvement in this. Uh, you know, Warren was all about the business, but it created a bad environment to operate in. Uh, and so he relocated to Holland and he took himself and his organisation over there. 
he had Steve and me over in Columbia working on these big, big cocaine deals. Uh, he had his heroin. He was getting stuff out of Morocco. Very interestingly, he had, um, by this time, he had such a good cannabis setup from Morocco uh, coming through southern Spain that the Moroccan royal family launched a crackdown on the cannabis trade around about 94. I think they'd be coming under a lot of pressure from the European Union about the cannabis trade. And they launched what was called, described to me by an officer who knew about it as a medieval crackdown. They, they, they took a lot of guys out and they didn't treat them very nicely. And for a short period, almost nothing um, came out of Morocco. Warren was still able to get a couple of tons out oh, in that shit. period. So that's how good his contacts were. When, when nobody else could get a spliff out of Morocco, Warren was still getting, wow. getting tons out wow. and selling it. So he was spinning all of these plates uh, from his base in Holland. <clears throat> and the mistake, I guess, uh, was that I, I think he thought, A, that nobody knew where he was, nobody in law enforcement, uh, and B, that even if they did, they wouldn't be able to investigate him in Holland. He was outside the reach <clears throat> of the Brits. But basically what the Brits is, is they went to the Dutch <clears throat> and they said, we've got this guy, <clears throat> he's major, would you launch an investigation into him? The Dutch at that time had a lot of major guys and they kind of said, well, you know, unless he's causing, unless, he's, unless there's a lot of violence associated with what he's doing, you know, we've got, we've got big drug dealers coming out of our ears over here. And the Brits said, no, he really is huge. And he, you know, he's, he's, he's in with the Cumbian cartels and the Turks. So eventually they persuaded the Dutch to take him on. And they launched an operation called Operation Mix. And they tapped his phones. And they got initial author, author, they got authorization to tap his phones for six months. And after six months in Holland, if I'm, my understanding of the law is right, if you've tapped somebody's phones for six months, at the end of that, you have to tell them. So obviously you, need, you want to wrap the... Um, operation up before six months because once they know their phones are tapped you're you've got a problem and i think warren was arrested about five five and a half months into operation mix by which time they had enough evidence on him they felt to charge him with this huge series of importations and plus the the cocaine that he'd been working on with Stephen me had come into holland and been taken out so they had lots of evidence they found weapons uh, guns grenades all sorts of stuff. Although Warren's gang had not been causing trouble in, in Amsterdam. They knew, they knew better than to do that. But they had the means to defend themselves if anybody wanted to cause trouble with them. So imagine then on these phone calls, he was smart enough to be talking in code. In my case, they brought in like an expert in code and gave his interpretation of what we were saying. Some of yeah. it was true, some of it wasn't. <coughs> yeah. Is that what happened with him? Yeah. So they would have some British cops or customs officers who would either sit in the phone tapping unit with them or listen to the tapes afterwards and would help them. The Dutch were greatly confused by a lot of things. Um, on one occasion, they uh, told the Brits that they needed them to identify a motorbike which somebody was coming over to the UK on. They thought he must be going to Dover or one of the other ferry ports, coming over on this bike, and then he was coming to... Um, uh, Holland and the, the Brits found this they, they'd never seen any evidence of any of this gang zipping around on motorbikes and they looked into it and basically um, one of the organisation had said to a guy get on your bike and get over here now of course he meant move quickly <laughs> he didn't literally mean get on your bike but that's so the Dutch thought another one was where they the, the Dutch were desperately trying to find a cafe where these uh, British gang were meeting some of their suppliers 
and they couldn't find it. And they said, we, we don't understand it. We know the name. It's the Café by us. But we cannot find a Café by us in the whole of Amsterdam. And, of course, the Scousers were saying the Café by us, next door to us, and yeah. the Dutch couldn't find it. So there was all sorts of minor things like that. They used code like bags of sand and goulash and squirts, you know, all the usual, you know, e ecstasy was the, the little things or... Um, Gary's, they used to call them uh, tablets. Gary Ablett's Liverpool football footballer Gary Ablett, who obviously had no <laughs> dealings in drugs himself, but they, all this sort of slang um, had to be kind of translated. And um, sometimes difficult <clears throat> to prove anything from you know these these kind of neutral conversations. But if you take in all the circumstances, you know if you've got a guy in Colombia. He's under surveillance by the Colombian National Police. They can see who he's meeting, and then he's on his on his satellite phone or whatever to Warren, saying working on that thing. You know that you know he's he's not importing T-shirts, although they they made up all sorts of bogus importations. I think railway sleepers was one of them, and uh, you know, well, um, at one stage I think Warren had shares in a winery in Bulgaria. I think, um, although they suspected that he was using that to. Um, to dissolve the cocaine and he was going to ship it in the bottles and then reconstitute it when it came over here. Yeah. So you can have the Robert Maxwell, he laundered <coughs> yeah. money through Bulgaria. <laughs> yeah, a lot of money, yeah. So, so mistakes were made, yeah. I think, yeah, it's fair to say. On the wiretaps then, it's like they wiretap one phone and then a person calls and does a deal and they wiretap that phone and then it just... Yeah, you've got to get up. I mean, the, the phone taps are really interesting. In the UK, we don't know a lot about... <coughs> phone taps because unlike the US and unlike Holland they're not evidential in court in the UK so what do you mean by that if you tap uh, somebody's phone in the U in the UK uh, a conversation between two criminals you cannot introduce it as evidence in court what not only can you this uh, it surprises you Sean and you know about this this is how little known this is um, not only can you not introduce it as evidence, you cannot even refer to it in court. Uh, you cannot say that somebody's phone was tapped uh, and and that there is a recording of that call. So if I, just hypothetically <coughs> speaking, call you up right now and say, get me an ounce of coke, yeah. and you say, right, meet me here, yeah. they can't use that against us? No. So what they would have to do, they would have to observe the handover of the coke, that would be evidence. The observation would be evidence. The photographs would be evidence. They could adduce in court that you made a phone call to me. So they could say there was a phone call made between these two phones, one in possession of Sean Atwood, one in the possession of Peter Walsh. The phone call lasted for two and a half minutes. They cannot adduce the contents of that in evidence. That's so different from America. I, I overheard <coughs> my prosecutor in court in a conversation with her counsel her people saying uh, bragging saying we've indicted two percent of maricopa county now thanks to wiretaps two <laughs> percent of the population That's not bad yeah um it also makes i mean from a journalist's point of view it's quite frustrating because in america if you want to write about um crime you can often the, the wiretaps will often give you you know a great source of information again in the uk there's no you you will never get access to wiretaps you'll never find a transcript um so how did you get the wiretaps <coughs> then to write your book they were um made in holland ah. where the where the rules are different yes yeah, so and to apply for that was it a process <coughs> all those 
They were released as part of the court discovery, um, and so we were able to get them, I think from memory, through one of the lawyers involved in the case. But through, they, through one of his lawyers off prosecution? That's a very good question. Um, it would, I can't honestly remember. It would be more likely to be the prosecution, but um, I can't honestly remember how we got... It was called the Dutch product, is how they referred to it, it was those, those wiretaps. So did Curtis know you were writing the book? Uh, at the time, I don't think so. We um, So once we were <clears throat> getting close to concluding it, we uh, went to see his uh, solicitor, Keith Dyson, um, and tried, I think, wrote to the prison that he was held in as well, uh, which was called Vucht in, in Holland, but we couldn't get um, any response from him. And I'm not even sure the messages got to him because Vucht was at that time, I think, the highest security prison in Europe. And... Um, a lot of the prisoners actually there complained that the only people that they were allowed to see were the priest and if they were lucky, their own legal representative. It was really, really difficult to make contact with anybody. It had some of the worst um, criminals in Europe there. I mean, major Yugoslavian drug barons, Turkish you know, terrorists, all, all kinds of... Um, kinds of people. So... Um, Has he said his thoughts on the book <coughs> since its publication? Um not so far as I know. Um, the, the difficulty has been that since he was um, sent to prison then, and as I say, was, was held in... Well, yeah, hold on a second. Let's, yeah. let's, let's just go back. Yeah, sure. All right, so how did his, how did his arrest go down? Um, so he was, I think he was asleep in a rented house, very nice house at a place called Sassenheim in uh, Holland. Um, Dutch armed police team... Masks, smoke grenades, um, guns, the whole hit. Um, uh, you know, a hard stop, as they say. Was, it, was he, he on his own? Or did he have a family? No, he was not family. He was he was with some of his some of his organisation. There was about ten of them all together. Um, some from Liverpool, some from Manchester, and I think they were taken out at two different locations. And um, then he was he was uh, locked up. As I say, the highest security. The courthouse in The Hague has a sort of bunker courtroom. Uh, he was brought there for the trial, sort of maximum security, helicopters, snipers, the full the full. where hit. they take the war criminals, is it? Yeah, I think this was mainly because of his links with the Colombians and people like that. I, I don't think it was, it was they feared there was any sort of particular violence um, with him, uh, but it was mainly because of the people that his organisation was seemed to have been um, connected to. And they had had a few... Uh, prominent escapes in Holland, although I think they were escapes from from prison, and I don't think they were violent escapes. I think they were just you know, people who'd, who'd you know, got away, and so they were determined that that certainly wasn't going to happen before he and others went to trial. Um, they they contested. I mean, they, there was a lot of argument about the evidence. They were trying to say that the wiretaps had that the authorization for the wiretaps had been illegal because of how the information that the British had originally given the Dutch. They said it was tainted information. They contested a lot of it, but he was ultimately convicted. And I think he got 12 years. And I think over there, the sentence 12 years meant 12 years. It, there was no there was no parole. So um, how many co-defendants went down with him? There was, there was just under a dozen. I think there was about 10 of them altogether. And that's uh, in Holland, is uh, it? Yeah, and I think they were pretty much all convicted, yeah. Were there simultaneous arrests in the UK? Um... No, there was an ongoing operation in the UK 
um, called Crayfish, which had been um, kind of launched on the back of the Warren investigation. But when the Brits weren't able to investigate Warren um, in Holland, and they had to sort of give that leave that to the Dutch, as it were, they had launched their own operation uh, from a, a secret location in the northwest of England. Um, they, they, they wouldn't go into a police station or a customs office because they were worried about leakage and of being observed. So they, they operated out of a secret location, uh, again, with uh, multiple phone taps, um, remote surveillance, um, spy planes, the full hit. They probably went to town in, in a manner they'd never done before. It was probably the biggest joint customs police operation that they'd ever been in the UK at that time. Wow. And Crayfish was into Merseyside drug dealing generally. A lot of it related to Warren, but some of it not. And they were trying to trace the connections between all of these gangs. And they found an entire ecosystem, if you like, in the city uh, based around the drugs trade. And Crayfish um, led to numerous prosecutions, huge amounts of seizures of all kinds of drugs and weapons until it was eventually wrapped up in the late 90s probably shouldn't have been wrapped up but there were kind of internal political reasons why it was so there were so to answer your question there were no or certainly very few direct arrests over here relating to warren's uh, arrest in holland but there was a series of arrests around the sort of merseyside drug infrastructure uh, of which warren was a central part and that that took place over a period of three or four years so <coughs> the Connections, then, <coughs> I assume they would just be passed on to other sure. yeah. associates. Yeah, so connections would be made and maintained um, if, you know, if certain people were taken out. And obviously that's an occupational hazard in the drug trade that somebody gets arrested or an extremist gets killed. The trade, the trade goes on. The trade carries on. So somebody else needs to needs to keep it going. And there were other groups also who weren't directly connected to Warren, who would have um, been in some respects seen themselves in opposition to him, who had also seen what he'd done and wanted to try to emulate it. So there was one white gang from the south side of Liverpool, who actually sent an emissary over to Colombia. <laughs> with the rather thankless task of trying to make a connection to a cartel. And he sort of swanned around Colombia for a few weeks. Well, did he Just land? trying to meet people in, in Bogota. Bogota. I, I, I think he flew, would have flown to Bogota. And then he kind of just swanned around for a few weeks with a, he had a few quid in his pocket, just trying to make contact with a drug cartel and came home in the end empty-handed because he hadn't been able to, to do they it. They would have been as suspicious as hell. It was suspicious as hell, but... Kelly you know, had, like, <clears throat> um, all the taxi drivers, yeah. all the phone company... Yeah, true. Anyone who landed, yeah, who was not a local person, yeah, they were watching them everywhere they went. Yeah. So I don't think it worked in that case, but it, that is the sort of mad gamble that could pay off. Yeah, yeah. I did that mad gamble with my um, ecstasy thing. I just sent people to Holland, right. just find someone. I said, find someone, and it worked. Well, one of the, one of the biggest drug go to the raves, go to the clubs, find someone. Yeah, one of the biggest drug link-ups in the UK actually came about through a chance meeting. Do you remember Ronnie Biggs, the great train yeah. robber? Well, he used to, he had a bar in Rio de Janeiro, which is quite famous, and a lot of the Brits hung out there. And there was a chance meeting between some British villains and some American coke smugglers in Ronnie Biggs's bar 
uh, in Rio de Janeiro, which led ultimately to the growth of the Brian Wright organization, which, which brought in tons of cocaine in the mid nineties. And that was just a meeting in a bar. <laughs> Two guys had having a conversation. Uh, one, one group saying, I'm in, we're interested in Coke. The other group saying, we've got as much Coke as you want. Yeah. <clears throat> Did a little deal first to see if it worked, see mm -hmm. if they could trust each other and then just built it up from there. So wow. that's the drugs trade. It's very fluid, isn't it? Yeah, and the <coughs> drugs never, ever stop flowing. So this is one of the messages on this channel. <coughs> End the war on drugs. The black market has inflated worthless plants into more value than gold. You can arrest Chapo. You can arrest Cali. You can arrest Escobar. You can arrest... Curtis Warren, the drugs always flow. The black market gets bigger every year. And everything from knife crime in London, the majority of it, to hundreds of thousands of dead in Mexico is a function of government policy making worthless plants more valuable than gold. So we, th we feel on this channel the whole war on drugs has got to be stopped. The Americans have spent $2 trillion on it. What have they got? Look at the fentanyl problem today. Things are just worse than ever. Absolute pissing away taxpayers' money so that private prisons, just one example, can make tens of billions a year in contracts because that's where all this money's going. Take all that money and go after the predators. So, you know, the killers, rapists, murderers, paedophiles. We've been told that the cops don't have enough money to go after paedophiles. So you've got all these vigilante groups setting up to do the jobs that the police do. And it's not the police at the ground level. They've been on here. They're good people. But they tell us they're getting these dumbass orders from the top. Revenue generation, arrest quotas, war on drugs, make more arrests. We get more money to spend. And on and on and on it goes. And bigger and bigger and bigger it grows. But the public are getting sick of it. And the good cops are sick of it. So it's the people that work in law enforcement that watch these podcasts. And I've had, I've had undercover cops come up to me. I was in like mm. a restaurant. Like, hey, we totally agree with you on this. Mm. We can't do anything. We're just trapped in this system where we can't do anything. So would you, would you, um, do you think that government policy has got to be, before we get back to Warren's story, do you think <laughs> government policy needs to be looked at? Yeah, I think I think there's there's been a bit of a sea change in the past few years anyway, hasn't there? So if you look at the United States, there's various states now. The people? That's the people? <clears throat> I'm sick of it at the state level. The people, this is not the American government voting this in. U.S. federal government maintained marijuana as a Schedule One substance more harmful than coke and crystal meth with no medicinal value whatsoever. Yet, yeah, look at the kids with the seizure, Charlotte. It's the people at the state level have voted it in. They're like, politicians, we're sick of this. But yeah, America was the first to spread all this, and now they're reversing it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It's, it'd be interesting to see how, I mean, because Port Portugal has also is, is decriminalised um, yeah. drugs. I think, I think all drugs. Um, Various countries in Latin America have been campaigning for a while. got their heroin users down because they're not scared of getting arrested. Yeah, it'd be very interesting. I mean, it's, the situation in the UK is quite intriguing, really. If you look back through the history of the drug war, it, it was a, a big issue in the UK in the 80s in particular, politically and in media terms, and in the 90s. You know, drugs was a big story. <clears throat> in the 2000s, and certainly in the last 10 years, it's kind of disappeared 
off the agenda. Particularly, the you, you very rarely hear politicians anymore, you know, weighing in on the drugs trade. And it's curious as to why this has happened. I mean, I have my own theory is that a lot of the current generation of politicians have tried drugs themselves when they were younger, and they they don't want to be asked about it. So they've kind of quietly dropped this off the agenda. It's a little bit hypocritical, <laughs> and you've got someone like Bill Clinton, whose brother was arrested yeah. undercover getting yeah. coke, yeah. says, yeah. my brother's got a nose like a vacuum cleaner. Yeah. Yeah, Bill Clinton then puts all these people away. Bush, same, puts all these people away. I think Clinton locked up a record number of women prisoners for low-level drug offences. Mm. How sick is that when, well, you're, when you're a cokehead yourself? Yeah, I've just read Barack Obama's autobiography, the first volume of it, and he's quite open about having smoked weed when he was younger. And I don't, I'm not aware that it caused him any political problems admitting it. So I think maybe society has moved further than the politicians have. They, they, certainly in this country, I don't think they've caught up with the public mood which is that um, there, there will always be a, a great sensitivity around certain drugs, heroin being the most obvious example. Um, but well, Obama, let me just say yeah. something about Obama then. He was part of the Tume gang in Hawaii when he was a young person. Right. And um, Tume meant getting blazed. They had a Tumobile. And the Tumobile was going up some mountain and there was a car accident and they were all stoned. And Obama fled the scene, according to the other members of the okay. tune gang. If he'd have been there and got done for something, yeah. look what would have happened. Yeah. See how, how idiotic, double standard. Yeah, yeah. so you'd have had uh, another president, maybe... Uh, we we maybe might not have, been, been, might not have even been able to come the president if he had <laughs> yeah. a marijuana conviction. Yeah, yeah. So it would be interesting to see what happens in the UK in the next few years, because I think this is a debate we're probably only just starting to have here Yeah, that, that has been had in other countries in the past few years. It's The, the politicians <coughs> are such absolute hypocrites in this country to not have completely legalised weed right now. And I'm not saying that because I want people out doing weed because that's not what happens. If heroin was legalised tomorrow, would you run out and do heroin? I don't think so. <laughs> what we want is harm reduction. Because the black market has caused chaos. Look at all this, the knife crime in London, rival gangs, and weed and coke are the two biggest drugs driving that. So let's legalise weed to start with. It is not. It should not be a Schedule 1 substance. Take all the harm, the black market out, the criminality, the danger of going to some dodgy house where you could get robbed in the house or coming out or the house could get raided and your young person could go in prison. And you're getting a call then, Mum, I just got busted with weed. I'm going to get a criminal record, right? It's going to ruin my future. Can you bail me out? Absolute nonsense. The police, the ones I spoke to, part of a leap, law enforcement against prohibition, they said they joined up to get the bad guys. Right. And they were assigned to infiltrate, infiltrate student groups, get them smoking weed, and arrest them at the end of the mm. month to make their arrest quotas. That's absolutely sick. And if you don't think this is still happening, Vice just put a video, it's got millions and millions of views, where the cops did this raid on a school, and they said they'd busted this drug gang. And it, and it, and it showed what had actually happened. They'd gone in there, they'd put like young-looking undercover cops, mm. and they'd found low IQ, IQ students. I think one was autistic. Right. And encouraged them to, to, do, to, to buy some drugs, and this big headline, we've busted this drug gang. Mm. 
absolutely sickening because they get all this money for making these arrests. Lowest hanging fruit, young people. There was a case in Manchester going back to the early 90s. You'll re remember um, in the late 80s, there was a big crack cocaine scare in the UK um, that we were going to import this... Um, this drug craze which had laid waste to the cities of America. They had all these videos of crack babies all and stuff. All these crack babies and, and so on. And um, But at that time, the law enforcement over here had not been able to find a lot of crack cocaine. In fact, in, in a lot of places, they haven't been able to find any. But I think partly driven by these press reports, uh, in the early 90s, Greater Manchester Police launched um, an operation to eradicate crack dealing in the Mosside area. And they sent out uh, trained undercover officers to, to buy, to do, to do some street buys. And, of course, they went out and they asked for crack because they wanted to arrest the crack dealers. Well, what they were told continually was, we haven't got any crack, but if, if you want some, come back next week. We've, you know, we've got heroin, we've got weed, we've got, we've got powder. No, we want crack, we want crack. So you can, you can see what's coming, can't you? By the following week, the dealers were selling them crack. After a few weeks, they built up the evidence. They arrested the gang. It was only afterwards, really, when they kind of did a debrief that they realised that Manchester hadn't had a crack cocaine problem, particularly, and that they'd actually created the crack cocaine market in Moss Side. Um, so they they didn't advertise that fact. I only found out about it by chance a couple of years later when I heard a, a talk by one of the officers involved. Um, so that's the kind of misguided unintentional consequences that can happen when you are led not by real intelligence but led by scare stories you know what you think is happening rather than what is really happening um, and you can end up creating the very problem that you think you're dealing with and when george hw bush did that speech where he posed with a bag of crack mm. and he said look the dealing crack at the gates of the white house now it's everywhere how that deal had gone down was he his he wrote a speech and they decided it would be better if he held a bag of crack up in it yeah and he authorized it and what they did was they enticed a school kid to come right by the white house with the crack right just to do that deal so they could put that into his speech yeah. and don't get me started on the cia's role in the crack epidemic if anyone's interested in that my war on drug series of books um covers that extensively but let's go back to curtis warren then so he's been arrested does he go for an appeal yes yeah um partly on these again these grounds of um the tainted investigation um no success during his incarceration he has a fight with a turkish murderer over what um not exactly sure what it was over but it was a fist fight, the end result of which the Turkish murderer died. Um, Did he fall funny or get hit funny? I, well, he certainly got hit. I don't know. Um, and I think, I think Warren may have had a, an addition to his sentence as a result of that. Um, Did they catch that on camera? Again, I think it was in Vught, which is probably the most cameraed up prison in the system. And for some reason, there wasn't a film in the camera, or it wasn't working that day. It was quite mysterious. Yeah, someone um, paid off. So anyway, he's so he. <clears throat> oh, then at, at um, uh, a, a few years later on, he was also then further charged with 
continuing to maintain his drug organization while he was in prison because of some of the people who'd been to visit him, who he'd been in communication with, were then themselves the result, um, the subject of investigations which led to to arrest. So they obviously believed that he was still maintaining. Um, but eventually he was released, um, shipped back to the UK. He still had, had a big uh, financial money seizure uh, against him, which... Again, he'd had to serve, I think, extra on his sentence because he hadn't settled this big... What year was he released from Holland, then? I wish I'd known you were going to ask me all this, Sean, because I'd have remembered (laughs) all of these dates. Um, I can't remember exactly. Would it be round about um, 2010? Would it be somewhere round about there, maybe? So he comes back to the UK. Comes back to the UK briefly and then takes himself off to Jersey... Um, I'm not sure why. I, I suspect probably because he thought it'd just be subject to too much attention here, and um, and Jersey's a nice place, isn't it? And uh, after a very sh- well, the, the the authorities in Jersey are tipped off straight away that he's there, um, keep him under surveillance, and he within a very short space of time, he's charged with involvement in a cannabis conspiracy with a friend of his who lives on Jersey. And he's rearrested and put back in prison, and he's been in prison ever since. He was ultimately convicted, again under rather dubious circumstances. Um, Jersey has its own legal jurisdiction and its own system, and, and one of the things which came out at trial, which is indisputable, is that um, there was a particular vehicle which some of the conspirators were travelling in a car, which was going to drive across Europe. Uh, Western Europe, and um, this needed it, the the uh, police, the Jersey police, had planted a bug in it, or were planning to plant a bug in it. <clears throat> in order to do that legally, they had to get permission of the countries that the car would pass through, uh, and they didn't. This was presented uh, as evidence at trial. The the um, product from this um, tap, this bug, um, it was pointed out by the defence that this was illegal. And I suspect in some jurisdictions it might have been enough to have um, basically had the whole case thrown out of court. But uh, the Jersey court decided that while the officers had broken the law, and I think knowingly broken the law, that it didn't matter and that the trial was going to go ahead. And uh, and it did, and he received another long sentence. Uh, again, appealed it, appeal failed, and so is is serving that sentence again I think with um, no time off because again he was subject to an assets forfeiture and has not been able to pay the amount that they wanted in the asset forfeiture which was an enormous amount of money I'm I'm not sure at one stage they didn't value or estimate the proceeds of his dealing at something like 198 million pounds which seemed a little bit on the um, optimistic side to me it was a nice headline for him though yes yeah so um so that as i understand it is the current position does he have a release date uh, i don't know okay so you go through making all this money and then you get busted it sounds to me like he's savvy enough to put some of this money away because he wasn't forthcoming and paying the fine the first time around, he's like, F you, government, I'm keeping my money. Gets out. 
and gets back into the business. What do you think motivates him? Because, you know, you, you throw a number out there like 200 million, even if it was 20 million, if you've got millions stashed, you've gone through a, a prison experience, you've got in a, had a fight to the death with someone. Mm. <clears throat> Wouldn't you just want to live happily ever after when you get out and not get back into it? I think so. I mean, there, there's a couple of question marks there. The, what Question mark number one is how much money would you still have? Yeah. Um, you know yourself, as we've just discussed, the the amounts that um, the police claim that you have made are often utterly disproportionate to what you may have made. And legal um, fees can rack up. Money, and people money goes, can just jack you once you're in prison as money well. Money goes, you know, if there was a clear um, trail of ownership of properties, if he had this money out there, they might have found it by now. They might, it might have, you know, it's, it's not easy... There's some, you know, you have banking secrecy in places like Dubai and whatever. But um, you know, how much, how much would you've stashed there? Looking back at the time, you know, I'm, I'm not sure when he was in his pomp, how much money you would have stashed away because you, you, you're not expecting to get nicked the next day. So you know, there's always another deal in the pipeline. There's always a lot of money out on the street as well. You know, so and often you hear the stashes rob you when you go to prison. Yeah. So um, I wouldn't necessarily assume that people are making this decision that although I've got lots, I'm going to keep doing it. It, it may be that they don't have lots. I'm not actually sure in, in Warren's case, you know, notwithstanding the fact that he was convicted um, in Jersey, I'm not entirely convinced of how active he, he was at that stage, you know, having just come out. I think they might have stitched him up. I, I don't think that, I think there was a conspiracy um, to import cannabis, uh, not a particularly huge amount I'm not sure how involved Warren is was in was in that conspiracy, um, and I think he may have been, to an extent, as much a victim of his reputation, and the fact that again, a bit like when he moved over to Holland, he just chosen the wrong place. Jersey is not the place to go and be a scouse drug trafficker with a bad reputation. We own Jersey. Uh, well, so I was at the Isle of Man. I visited the prison on the Isle of Man. The drug laws on the Isle of Man are crazy. Yeah, uh, they give you huge sentences. Yeah. So do it, we own, do we own jerseys? Is it like the Isle of Man? Well, it's um, it, we, yeah. I, I don't we don't own it exactly. What I mean is it like kind of, yes, it's, former it's, British Empire? Yes. Blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so in that in that respect, apologies to the yeah, yeah, people, to the of good people of Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, why would you keep doing it if you had the wherewithal not to? Um, I'm not sure that I could answer that because it's certainly not something that I would keep doing. Uh, Just from researching him though and writing the book, I mean, researching and writing about Escobar, I got a feel for what motivated him. Did you get a feel for what motivated Curtis? A couple of, um, I mean, top level sort of drug traffickers have said to me that it is the most exciting thing you'll ever do. One guy who was one of, one of the earliest British cannabis smugglers in any quantity said it was like living in a movie. Yeah, we used to joke when we were doing it, we're living in a movie. Yeah, and... Um, we're above the law, we never get caught. There has, to be, telling us there has to be something completely addictive about that. It, you know, for all the headaches that it causes and for all that you would only want to do it for a certain length of time... Um, you know, you, I guess if you only have one shot at life and, and you find that is the, the ultimate drug. Uh, I mean, as far as I know, Warren doesn't drink, doesn't doesn't take drugs himself. So, you know, this this may have been his kind of 
his life fix, really. It's the yeah. same with the cops. Mm. Chasing the robbers. No doubt about it. They've got yeah. the same adrenaline high. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the the yeah, they're not the, too different. The personality. The types. drug squads that um, that went after these sort of top guys, they absolutely loved it. There's no. I mean, they literally <clears throat> worked seventy, eighty hours a week without complaint because they were enjoying it so much. It was the ultimate game of sort of cat and mouse. Um, so I've written extensively about the Colombians. Then mm. they're no longer active. The people I've written about. Sure. I had operations through Mexico and I knew like pilot, I had a, a friend actually who was a pilot for Sinaloa cartel yes. and he's like, you know, never write about these guys. They're active. They've got a long reach. The, mm. Fucking the cartels are worth more than small countries. Mm. Do you write about things that are more recent, more active and do you worry about any repercussions if, if so? There's always a difficulty about uh, writing about things. If you're doing stories about organised crime, it's always very difficult to write about things right up to date. Look at Saviano. <laughs> yeah, well, not so much that, but there's, there are legal difficulties. So, um, I mean, it, it was um, an issue when we were finishing the book on um, Curtis Warren, Cocky. Um, what year did that come out? It would be around about 2000, I think, the first edition. Um some of the people that you want to write about in the book end up getting arrested themselves. So if you want to name them in the book, you have to wait until the case has gone through court. You can't, you can't um, name somebody as a criminal when he's about to stand trial. That would prejudice his trial. The next thing you know, you're on a contempt of court charge. So, so there's, there's, there's just a logistical, there's a time problem with writing about, particularly in the UK, with our, uh, our legal system being what it is and the contempt of court laws, that once proceedings are active against somebody, and it can take two or three years for them to finally stand trial, and then if they appeal, then you have to have the appeal heard, it's very difficult to write about them in the interim. So you've constantly got this problem. You might have done all the work on a book, for example, or a documentary, whatever it may be, and then suddenly you find that a key figure's been charged and you've got to put everything on ice for whatever. So Can't you just change the name of that person? Well, you... you and say like the names have had to be changed. If they were ide- if they were identifiable, if they could be identified, then that doesn't really mm. get you around that that issue. Um, and also, I I don't like using pseudonyms for people anyway. I, I kind of feel it's a bit of a cop out, really. If you're going to, you know, the point about writing this for me is it's a kind of it's modern history. You want to tell the story, and if you're changing people's names, you're not telling the real story. So that's always a, a problem with writing about anything contemporaneous um, in the UK. I guess it is it is difficult. I mean, would would I um, you know would I jump on a plane to uh, Mexico City and go and try and write an investigation of the Mexican drug cartels? No, I wouldn't. You'd be absolutely mental to have to to want to do that. Um, you know, it's that's a it's a very different um, proposition. But I think the chief the concern for these guys is law is, is law is what they're doing at the moment and, and what could get them caught that's their concern um there's no point worrying about something that you know somebody who's written about something that you did 10 years ago for which you were convicted at the time and have served your sentence and it was in all the newspapers and it was on television and whatever so in a sense it, the only way you can you can do these books in this country really is 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 in a kind of historical fashion you you the, there has to be a slight delay they're just not really doable otherwise um you know just just because of the constraints of our system so one of the things we're going to talk about is the rivalry between the cops and customs officers mm. and i was going to ask do you think 
Curtis got away with it for so long because of that rivalry. And did any evidence come out that he had corrupted local law enforcement or officials or customs officers? Um, it, it definitely hampered the efforts to catch him. Um, when um, customs and the police started working on him in the early 90s when they suspected of his involvement in these big cocaine importations there were actually several different police forces and several different customs office offices who initially started working against him independently um so he was the subject or he was one of the subjects of an investigation by west midlands police in the birmingham area he was the subject of an investigation by the regional crime squad in Cleveland in the north northeast, uh, he was the subject of an investigation by the customs cocaine team, one of the customs cocaine teams in London. Uh, he was also, or, or um, uh, associates of his, were the subject of investigations by the customs Manchester office, which covered Liverpool. So you had. Um, these sort of uh, different groups of people within all, all within law enforcement, eventually kind of tripping over each other, and so at some stage they they kind of got together and tried to get a grip of the investigation, and in truth they never quite did. Um, it never quite worked. Um, the chains of command, the chains of communication, um, were handled very very badly. And I think that was undoubtedly a factor in him, uh, in, in the charges being uh, thrown out of court against him in his first trial up at Newcastle Crown Court. Subsequently, and this was what led to this big operation called Crayfish in the whole of Liverpool, <clears throat> Customs and the police got together and said, we can't, we can't have this. this, this is not working. And they agreed a joint team and they adopted a lot of the sort of police methods of working and the customs methods of working, they tried to meld the two together, they worked jointly, and um, the people who are involved in it tell me that it worked really, really well. And it should have been a model going forward. But then in around about 1998, the police were launching a new national organisation called the National Crime Squad, and the National Crime Squad wanted to kind of define itself in the market as sort of Britain's FBI-type organisation. And they pulled the plug on crayfish, and they they stopped that operation, and that kind of fizzled out. Um, so yeah, to answer your question, it it definitely was a factor in the failure to convict Warren and others the first time round. The the various investigations at that stage were a, were a mess. It was definitely recognised, and they tried to do things to correct it, and to an extent were successful. So. Does each jurisdiction want to pose for news headlines and say we got the big fish? Is the, is the if you go back to the sixties when all this kind of first first kicked off and how the demarcation happened in in most countries like in the United States the the lead on law enforcement uh, both domestically and abroad is the DEA, um, but particularly anything to do with smuggling with large scale drug investigations is is the DEA, the FBI and then local. Um, you know, state police forces and others will will deal with smaller cases, but the the DEA has has the primacy in that role. 
in most other countries it's the it's the police so in canada it's the royal canadian mounted police the mounties in germany it's the uh the police uh in um in italy i think it's the guardia finanza the financial police the uk slightly had a slightly different system in the uk customs and excise developed very early on a sort of role in interdicting um, drugs because customs are responsible for the borders at that time the there weren't many drug squads in the various police forces we have 40 odd police forces in local police local constabularies around the country based on counties and the biggest drug squad and by far the most influential was in london was the metropolitan police drug squad and the the, the met uh, and the bosses uh, began to realize that britain was developing a drug problem in the 60s predominantly cannabis lsd the sort of hippie counterculture all this kind of thing and the drug squad became more and more it started to build up a bit became more and more proactive but they realized that customs had this sort of role in dealing with importation and importation tends to be where you get the big seizures it's where the stuff comes in in bulk once it's out on the street you're dealing in small amounts and it's it's difficult to build a big case so the 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 met wanted to get primacy they wanted a national drug organization with them in charge and of course customs didn't particularly want this because they found that they were pretty good at doing this this drug interdiction stuff and it was they quite liked the system the way it was and also there was an argument that if you have two organisations working in the same area, one can keep an eye on the other. The problem with the drugs trade, with law enforcement, is that it, corruption is endemic. The drugs lends itself to law enforcement corruption. It just does because of the amounts of money, because it's a victimless crime. So if police raid a place and there's a load of drugs there, if the cops are corrupt and they decide we're just going to steal these drugs and sell them ourselves, nobody's going to complain. The drug dealer's not going to complain because he's not getting charged with this offence. So it kind of lends itself to corruption. If you have two organisations in a kind of symbiotic relationship, they can keep each other, you know, keep each other clean, as it were. So these were the arguments which were deployed. They didn't cut a lot of ice with the Met. <clears throat> and the Met could have forged ahead with its plans to have primacy in the drugs trade. And the problem was that the Met hit a corruption scandal of exactly the kind that had happened in New York and other cities. And um, the shakeout from all of that, uh, which happened in the 70s, was that customs ended up maintaining their prime role in importation. A couple of very, I mean, these are, again, stories which are really not very well known about now. And they're the sort of things that you hear about New York in the 60s, the, the, the famous French connection case in, the, in New York in the 60s, which was Turkish and Corsican heroin Going into uh, going in, into New York and and fueling the heroin market there, uh, they seized loads of heroin in the famous French Connection case. It went into police lockups in New York and it gradually disappeared onto the market. That corrupt officers stole it and sold it on the street. Amazing story, um, you know. The result you know, led to all sorts of inquiries and commissions and one thing or another. You would never think that that could happen here, except exactly the same thing happened here in the. 1976, I think it was the biggest drugs bust the Met had ever made. 600 kilos of Moroccan cannabis stamped with a stamp of a Moroccan coin. So it was known as the Moroccan coin cannabis. Huge seizure in Hertfordshire at a house. I think the commissioner of the Met was wheeled out saying, what a marvellous job his, his boys had done. All went into the uh, lockup at Wapping in East London. Uh, it was preserved for the trial because it was they needed it for the evidence. And then once the trial 
was finished. It was to go to incineration at the you know, the government-backed um, incineration plant. Only a few weeks later, cannabis started appearing <laughs> on the streets of London with fingerprint um, powder on it. In other words, it was the Moroccan coin cannabis, which had come from the police stash, which instead of going to the incinerator, had been moved from one van to another and had been sold out on the market to friendly dealers via corrupt police officers. And that was that was the biggest cannabis seizure by the British police at that time. And it ended up on the streets of London. That is an absolutely brilliant story. I'm so glad you just give us that story because it just backs up everything we're saying. Early on, I said that doesn't matter who you arrest, you've made worthless plants more valuable than gold. The drugs always keeps flowing, always keeps flowing. But in the opposite direction, the money is also keeps flowing, also keeps flowing. Now, whoever that drugs or money comes into contact with, it pays its own way out of the situation to keep flowing. So, what you just said, the drugs came into contact with the police in charge of stopping the drugs and incinerating the drugs. But the drugs was worth so much money, these plants, worthless plants, more valuable than gold, worth so much money. It pays its way to the police to keep flowing onto the streets. Unstoppable because of drug laws making plants more valuable than gold. Absolutely insane. This is government policy, people. And there is a turning point in society, especially the young people, completely against the war on drugs. So many people have partook in weed smoking. Some, not as many, have partook in using coke. And these include the politicians, the very politicians, forcing these drug laws down our throats. It's got to stop. And it's you guys working in law enforcement, undercover cops coming up to me saying blah, 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 blah. We know this is the truth. Make these changes. Make them happen. Tell your bosses, this isn't why I signed up to throw kids in prison for fucking weed possession. It is changing in this country now, but there was a, not just, fast just enough. To, there, was fast another, enough. there was another case at the same time, actually, Sean, which I don't think received any publicity at all, where it was a similar, it was a, it was a large cannabis seizure. <clears throat> the guys were going on trial, responsible, and the cannabis was taken to the court, I think it was the Old Bailey in London, and it was kept in a, in a room at the court in case the, they wanted to show it in the court as, as evidence against these guys and to impress on them. And during the trial, the cannabis was stolen from the lockup of the courtroom. Now, subsequently, the prosecution tried to cast doubt on the defendants to suggest that they had somehow been involved in this. What had actually happened was that corrupt police officers had stolen it from the actual locked-up room at the Old Bailey while the trial was going on and recycled it on the streets. So that's the kind of thing that was happening in London in the 70s. Yeah. In my book, American Made, I wrote about a prosecutor in Arkansas who was allowing local dealers to sell the product. And if you weren't working with that prosecutor, if you came in and set up shop, that prosecutor would have your house raided, you would go to prison for a long time, so that prosecutor could show that he was fighting 
the war on drugs. But actually, those drugs owned that prosecutor because the drugs always have to keep flowing. This is going on all over the world right now. You know, Peter talked about these countries where the drugs are being sourced from. The governments of those countries are in on it. The heads of the military are in on it. Escobar had the local Air Force base telling him whatever aircraft were approaching his mansion. Escobar boasted his money put the president in power. He decided who the president was going to be. Same with the Cali cartel, the gentlemen of Cali. That money, the drug money, controls the people in charge of drug policy. And then it's the people in charge of drug policy can decide who deals the drugs and who goes to jail. And they make examples of all the lowest hanging fruit, all these mules. You know, students get stupid ideas overseas, get some weed in the backpack. You've all saw Midnight Express. It's all these mules all over the world that they can then say, look, we are fighting the war on drugs. America, send us more money, more helicopters, more this, more that, more weapons, more prisons. But at the same time, they're the ones running the drugs with a select group of people in that area. Escobar said to his local cops, you want a promotion? Right, go to this warehouse. I've got a load of coke there. Go and bust it. We'll send our journalists headline news. Cops would go along, seize the coke. Journalists would show up. They'd get promotions. And then when all that was over, when the news had broadcast this big seizure of coke, the coke would be transported to Pablo's aircraft and shipped on over to America to be sold. This is how corrupt this whole thing is because there's so much money at stake. Do you have anything to add to that, Peter? I don't think I do. I think you've covered the subject adequately. <laughs> All right, so let's see. We are going over these pointers, but, but trying to weave in the Curtis Warren story. So you've written here, Costa del Crime and Liverpool in the 1980s. These two places were key to the UK drug supply. And we've also got um, Howard Marks coming into this story as well yeah, somewhere. Yeah. So, by the in the in the sort of mid sixties when the the modern drug trade <clears throat> or the modern drug market grew in the UK, <clears throat> for the next sort of ten years, I think it was it was kind of fairly loose, sort of chaotic. Um, you know, drugs coming in from different places, guys going on the hippie trail and bringing stuff back. Um, you know, there was no structure to uh, what was a very young market in economic terms. I think it was by the late 70s, you could actually see in the cannabis trade there was starting to be a bit of a structure and there were certain groups who were emerging as um, not dominant, but as, as the, the biggest players. Would, would that include Michael and Delroy Showers? We've had Michael on the podcast. Uh, I'm not... Yeah, Del, Delroy... Um, would have been yeah late seventies in the Liverpool certainly Liverpool as a as a as a, a group um, or a number of groups if you like would have been one of the one of the big organisations so there would be 
There was a group of criminals in Liverpool, of which the showers would have been part. Uh, there were a couple of groups in London of what you might call established criminals. And then there were two or three groups of what I would refer to as the sort of counterculture smugglers, the sort of hangover of the sort of hippie era, but who were still, you know, Howard Marx's organisation being one of those, who were bringing in huge amounts of cannabis. So there was about six, um, six different identifiable organisations or groups. Probably the biggest in terms of cannabis at that time was probably not Marx. There was a, two, it was a group based in London... It was run by two guys, Bobby Mills, who was a Londoner, and Ronnie Taylor, who was a Scot. But they'd met, I think, while they were serving, doing national service in the 50s. And they started shipping um, huge amounts of cannabis from Morocco on a, a ship, the Guiding Lights, which would make several trips a year. And their customers were not the sort of the established kind of uh, student or, um, you know, hippie market of, of Marks & Co., they were sort of proper villains spread around the country. So they would be selling to the guys in Manchester who were known as the Quality Street Gang. They'd be selling to the big villains in Glasgow, uh, big villains in London. They were, this was the kind of criminalisation of the cannabis market, if you like, in, in terms of sort of hardcore criminals. And Liverpool had a similar eco ecosystem of probably a group, I think Liverpool Drug Squad at one stage in the early 80s identified about 50 named individuals who didn't all work together, but they were kind of um, uh, an ecosystem. A lot of it based around corruption at the docks. By this time, they'd <clears throat> the, the dockers originally used to report drugs if they found them. You know, when they were unloading a ship, they wouldn't they wouldn't report booze or uh, you know other things, but but they would report drugs. But by this late seventies, um, there was a number of um, sort of criminals who'd managed to corrupt um, key. Uh, dockers and shop stewards to turn a blind eye and to help unload, offload, um, you know, hiding drugs on the docks, moving containers and this sort of thing. And um, so Liverpool became, you know, probably outside London, the kind of biggest centre for expertise in that sort of smuggling smuggling market. Yes, you often hear, like, the big three cities for drug gangsterism are London, Liverpool and Manchester. Yes. And you've laid down some of the factors there. Yeah, so London London and Liverpool would be more important in importation. Um, London also is the biggest market. Uh, Manchester was more important as a market rather than, um, uh, than, a, than as a place of importation. So the gangs from Liverpool tended to be very good at smuggling the stuff into the country. Uh, and Manchester was a big distribution, you know, very high student population, uh, you know, a big ethnic minority population, you know, a lot of use of <coughs> uh, cannabis and other recreational drugs, big nightclub scene from, you know, going back to the 60s when, uh, you know, you had the mod clubs and the the, the pills and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, yeah, they would probably be the, the three um, predominantly... Uh, Glasgow to a lesser extent in the 80s mainly because it had a heroin problem and Bristol or the port of Avonmouth as well was quite important in the early days as as an importation as as a point of entry (coughs) So I met Howard Marks before he died in in the odd green room here and there (coughs) fantastic raconteur I watched him in pubs and venues just people Mm. packed in wall to wall 
I was laughing my head off all the way through at his yeah, stories. Yeah. Was he a competitor of Curtis Warren then in the weed market? Would they have had some kind of... Uh, no, I, he, Howard would have been out of the game before. So I think Howard's uh, last major arrest was 88. So it had been a bit bit early. He would have been a uh, contemporaneous with some of the Liverpool guys who, if you like, preceded uh, Curtis Warren. Um, and in fact, there's quite a... An, an interesting story. So the, probably the the earlier model for Curtis Warren was a guy called Tommy Comerford, who was a very well-known Liverpool villain. And I say earlier model because Comerford is often cited as the first major importer of all the different drug groups. Really? Was he out of Toxteth? And he was out of Liverpool. He wasn't out, wasn't out of Toxteth. He was, uh, he'd worked on the ships, Tommy. He was a rogue, a villain, part of the Liverpool sort of criminal scene. And he got into the drugs trade in the 70s. He was a larger-than-life character, club owner, uh, raconteur. But he uh, you know, had convictions relating to cannabis, cocaine, heroin, LSD and speed. So, And that was very unusual, as I say, at that stage. He was uh, sent to prison where he was on remand, uh, a big case made against him. And at the same time, another one of these big, five or six smuggling groups, um, which was a, a group of um, sort of uh, uh, kind of hippie types, were, had also been arrested, and some of them were on remand in the same prison. So they met uh, Tommy, and they, they had a conversation, they had a bit of a chat, and they talked about the drugs trade, because they, these were two of the biggest organisations in it. And um, at the same time, the Howard Marks organisation had also been arrested, so Comerford apparently wrote a note which he gave to one of the to this other drug group that he was in remand with to see if they could pass it to Howard, who was the third b- big drug group. Three of the big five or six groups had all had all been arrested around about that time. Now I don't know if that note still exists, but if it did, it would be a unique <laughs> historical artifact because there you have three of the sort of half dozen biggest drug smuggling groups in the UK this chance meeting in prison between two of them who didn't know each other. And Comerford, I think, just being friendly, wanted them to pass a note to Mark saying, you know, how are you doing, Howard, kind of thing. Uh, so it, it may be tucked away in uh, Marx's belongings somewhere, I don't know. Who was Gigi Bekir from North London? Did we do his? Yeah, so Gigi Bekir was... The guy's been identified as the first major heroin baron in the UK. So, so when I... Um, undertook the latest book that I've written, which is Drug War, which is the, the history of the UK or smuggling to the UK since the 60s. The three drugs that I looked at were cannabis, cocaine and heroin. And I've tried to trace the, the, the rising consumption of each and to see where they came, who were the guys who were bringing it in. And the name that stuck out when it came to heroin was this guy, Ahmet Gigi Bakia who was um, a North London Turkish guy who had been over here. Well, he was originally, he was a a Cypriot, a Turkish Cypriot, um, came over here in the late 50s to London and ran mod clubs, strangely enough, for a Turkish guy in the the 60s and was quite quite a trendy guy, but a pretty tough guy. He was a judo expert, um... He was an expert with knives, which he kept an impressive collection at his North London flat. And he fell foul of the law for um, 
various drug offences, mainly around sort of pills at that time. At some stage in the 70s, Gigi tapped into the heroin production in Turkey and started to import it into the UK. And he had it, part of his cover was a pickle factory in North London. And um, he started now at, at that stage, Turkish heroin, Tur- Turkish heroin had been a big problem in the United States. We referred earlier to the French connection and the, the pipeline that ran. Basically, the Turks supplied the mafia and the mafia supplied the United States. That's kind of how that that worked. They hadn't really targeted the UK as a market because the UK didn't have a big heroin problem until the mid to late 70s when it started to develop. And um, the Turks, Bekir being chief among them, sensed an opportunity and they started to supply increasing amounts to this market and had different ways of smuggling it. They were they were great smugglers. Their, their concealments, they had these things called a zula, means a box in Turkish, and they would hide a kind of metal box inside the chassis of a car such that they would, they would weld it in such that it was almost impossible to find unless you knew where it was, sometimes in the fuel tank. And um, they would drive these cars from Europe into the UK and that's how you would get the heroin. So um, so Bekir became a target for customs. But what was interesting is he also became an informant. And as you'll know yourself, having been involved in the drugs trade, Sean, the, the criminal code, if it ever did exist in any other walk of life, doesn't really exist in the drugs trade. I mean, if you talk to experienced investigators, they will tell you that almost everybody talks at some stage or another. And well, I was lucky in my case. We had over 100 people arrested and only four agreed to talk. Only four agreed to talk, but, but yeah. that's enough, isn't it? That's enough. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. Did, it did reduce my plea bargaining power. Yeah, yeah. So Slightly. And certainly in the, in the, the sort of Turkish milieu, uh, you know, um, Bekir himself um, was from Cyprus, as I say. He wasn't from Turkey, but in Turkey itself, where you, you had these well-established drug smuggling organisations... In the Turkish system, if you get arrested, um, ultimately everybody talks because they employ torture, and it and it is you know prolonged in in their system. Um, you you would be subjected to torture until you talked. So everybody, in a sense, is an informant. Everybody's playing the system. Nobody is standing on the sort of the alleged mafia code of omerta of, of silence, which you you might be able to get away with in the American system, where nobody's going to. <clears throat> attach electrodes to your limbs. So um so Bakir was 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 dishing the dirt on rivals to customs but at the same time was running his operation and now he wasn't given permission to run his operation he was he was lying to his handler and he was saying he, he was saying that he wasn't involved but they knew he was involved and so <clears throat> customs continued to investigate him tap his phones put him under surveillance while he was also feeding information to them about these other gangs, and eventually he was he was arrested. He had a few different methods. Um, one was the concealment in cars. He also had couriers coming through the airports, uh, and um, I think ultimately he was uh, convicted of a series of um, importations totaling something twenty or thirty million pounds worth, which in the UK heroin market at that time was was enormous. And so he, he's significant in that he is the kind of first 
name that you could attach to to that growing market in heroin consumption now what is interesting and this again shows you the we talked right at the beginning about how law enforcement is often playing catch-up um customs and the police had a series of successes in the early 80s Bekir's case being one of them against turks they then had a hiatus for a few years where they didn't have any more successes against them and i when i was researching my book i wondered why this was and it turned out to be something very mundane there was a, a very elderly but very experienced turkish interpreter who worked who helped the phone tapping unit to translate the, the dialect that the Turkish smugglers talked in on the phone. And he retired. And they couldn't get anybody that they trusted to fulfil his role. Wow. So it was very difficult to get up on the phones and to understand what they were talking about. And so for a reason as mundane as that, for a period in the mid-'80s, a lot of the investigative attention of the heroin trade shifted to Pakistan and India, to heroin coming from there. And the Turks were kind of dropped. Not completely, but... And in that period, I suspect they were building up their importance in the market. So although there was a lot of um, Pakistani and Afghan heroin coming into the country, and, and it was it was perfectly legitimate to have teams spending a lot of <clears throat> investigative time on that. The neglect of Turkey meant that around about 86, 87, when suddenly we got up on the Turks again and realised they were bringing in truckloads of heroin, there was suddenly a huge catch-up effort had to be made because something had been going on that had been, had been missed. And um, it actually took... It was one person, really, an investigator called Emrys Tippett, a customs officer, who, who kind of saw what was happening. He went to an Interpol conference and he met a colleague from Holland who told him about these lorries that they'd been finding coming in on this Balkan route from Turkey. <clears throat> and they'd had a couple of random seizures in the UK that they couldn't quite put a finger on. And the pair of them sat down together in a bar uh, after after the conference, and they on a napkin they they wrote down what they what they'd kind of found and the sort of some some check checklists of you know the lorries from a particular area carrying particular sort of produce like melons that were kind of they, they wouldn't have imported them at that time of year they weren't really economical and they realised that there there was something going on that they'd been missing and um, Emrys Tippett went back told his bosses. And at Dover, they told the customs officer at Dover to start looking. And all of a sudden, they started making these huge, huge finds of heroin in these lorries that they had, had no idea had been coming in, in, that, in those quantities. Wow. I'm just absolutely <clears throat> blown away by your stories. We've got about 15 minutes left. So I'm okay. going to do these last three points then. This one goes is heroin as well. So we're talking about Afghanistan and heroin. So my viewpoints of Afghanistan and heroin range from we're going to go into Afghanistan and we're going to stop the opium and solve the heroin problem. And then they get there and the opium plants are like, don't destroy us, please. We're more valuable than gold. And then the CIA just says, right, we might just have to take over this. That's one viewpoint I have. My other viewpoint is, 
they just knew before they even went in that the plants were more valuable than gold. And they're like, hmm, we, we'll just take ownership of those. And now we've got record levels of deaths and chaos and government policy again. What's your feelings? Yes. Um, I'd say two things to that. Firstly, in, in the early days of the um, start of the Pakistani heroin trade to Europe, which there was no, there'd been no seizures of Pakistani heroin in the UK until 1979. And then what seems to have happened is that after, or around about the time of the Russian invasion of Afghanistan, the CIA were uh, trying to uh, motivate the Mujahideen to fight against the Russians because it served American interests. And they turned a blind eye, uh, and suddenly these heroin labs started to proliferate. The, the Pakistanis from somewhere and the Afghans got the technology to refine heroin into, into opium, uh, and uh, sorry, refine opium into morphine and thence into heroin, which they hadn't had before. Nobody's quite been able to put a finger on where it came from. Some have said that they imported experts from Thailand. Uh, customs officer told me, a British customs officer, that uh, he once stopped an associate of Howard Marks's coming back from Pakistan, coming through customs, stopped him, and in his um, luggage he had a chemistry set. And this was a set which could have refined opium into morphine. And he suspected that this associate of Marx's had been out there showing the Pakistanis how to, which is a very interesting story. So anyway, so that that could have been seen as a spur to the heroin trade in that area, was the, the geopolitics of American involvement, turning a blind eye, supporting various warlords, and um, them somehow gaining the technology to create heroin, which they then sold in bulk to Europe. If we then come forward 20 years, uh, post 9-11, the Allied invasion of Afghanistan, uh, the destruction of the Taliban, um, reconstruction after the war, which hadn't been given a lot of thought, the Western powers get together and they decide who's going to do what. The Americans obviously taking the lead on military security. Uh, the Germans, I think, took the lead on, on uh, economic redevelopment of the country to try to build up the infrastructure again. And we... Uh, agreed, we, the UK, that we would take the lead in counter-narcotics We would to counter this heroin trade. And we would train up the Afghan police and we would, you know, apply all our intelligence tools. And one of the things that we were involved in was called Operation Drown, which involved crop eradication and paying the farmers to eradicate um, their crops. Um, it didn't work. In fact, it was a complete shambles as these eradication programs often are to the stage where the americans ran out of patience a couple of years later and decided to launch their own um program which was called the five pillars plan and um being americans you know they they tend to like um shooting people they like blowing things up especially wedding parties so this um this involved um looking for high-value targets. Again, they have, a, they have a propensity to identify kingpins and to go after them. And um, they developed these uh, d special DEA teams called FAST teams, which are basically sort of paramilitary outfits who would go in, hit these labs, you know, shoot any resistance. They launched drone strikes. They tried to continue the eradication programme. 
the upshot of all of that was that um, 2017, 2018, just a few years ago, Afghanistan was growing more heroin than any time in history. Thank you, government policy again. Just creating a disaster. Killing all those young people in America. But no one like, blame the cartels, blame the terrorists, blame this, blame that. When really, it's their own policy. All right, so drug trade today, cryptocurrencies, the dark web. We do have a dark web series every Friday night with Ron Swanson. It is a live stream, but it comes with a huge disclaimer. You need to have a puke bag at your side if you're going to watch that. If you do watch it, please don't complain and say you didn't know what was going to happen. There are horrendous things going on on the dark web. Um, what Ron Swanson looks at are the predators, which is absolutely horrific. But we've not really looked in depth at the dark web drug market. So one of the things I tried to do in drug war was to was to trace a history and see if I could see strands of how these different the importation of these drugs had developed. Starting off with a few individuals, if you like, entrepreneurial individuals, but at some stage the market reached a kind of peak. And uh, it, it's trying to actually tell that story in a coherent fashion to a reader. And I think by about 2000, about 20 years ago, you, you, could, you could do that. You could see how the market had reached, if you like, maturity. There, there were certain groups, certain routes into market, certain transport routes that were identifiable and you could give, have a snapshot of the whole thing. Looking at it now in 2021, I would not envy anyone trying to write the, write the story of the drugs market because it's utterly chaotic. It is, it is huge, diffuse, um, almost uncategorizable. You can, you know, somebody can rise from nowhere and become a player overnight. If you have enough money, you can just go and buy some product and then take it somewhere else and sell it and make yourself a load of money. Um, There are so many different methods of selling. Uh, We've had this whole phenomenon of county lines, which is really a continuation of trends that already existed for a long time. But, you know, that's just one of so many um, encrypted, you know, we've got the whole Encro chat story now of this, this encrypted phone system, which law enforcement broke and which has led to arrests and, um, you know, multiple court cases across Europe. How did they break it? Um, I think the French managed to crack the system. Um, I'm not exactly sure how. They then shared that information with the Brits and others. But if you think of how much of a... And and they they took out a lot of people and a lot of drugs. How much of a blip will that make on the market? Probably barely registered. I mean, the market now, it's, it's almost like a couple of companies, a couple of big multinational companies going bust on the stock market. Or like this ship which has just got stuck in the Suez Canal, I don't know if you, and, and, has, and has blocked trade down the canal. It'll be a blip for a couple of days, and then everything just goes, Drugs roars away flowing. back to normal. It is just, yeah. just an endless flow. And the drug market now, it's so hard now, you can't even identify what you might call major players, because there are just so many, and they just appear and disappear with just such amazing frequency. Um that it, it's very difficult to now to trace any 
any strands, any arcs, any storylines in the whole of that. So good luck to anyone who's trying to chronicle the drug trade of today because it's very difficult. And then you've got all these like other drugs that exist that they're creating yeah, synthetics, the synthetics. Yeah, yeah. To try and get around drug yeah. laws. Yeah. Therefore, their very existence is a function yeah. of drug laws. So you've got a whole generation of young people who are guinea pigs with these substances. Yeah, yeah. It's really... All right, let's finish with your publishing then and your books. I mean, Peter, I could talk to you for hours. This is a subject close to my heart. Mm. You know, not only have you backed up a lot of the things that I've been researching and saying on this about our mission statement, but I've learned so much from you today. It's been absolutely fascinating to hear, you know, all the stuff that you've researched. There's loads of things that tie into what I've researched that I was completely unaware of. Right. So I really appreciate you sharing your knowledge. Um, so I, I imagine there's, there's far more detail in your prolific output, lot, yes. output of literature. <laughs> Do you want to run down, um, you know, the books that you've written over the years? Yeah, so I, I, uh, well, I started um, a publishing business about 25 years ago, and it was mainly to publish books on subjects that at that time I didn't I didn't think mainstream publishers were covering <clears throat> so um I'd actually <clears throat> written a book with a guy who's a leader of a football hooligan gang in Manchester and that was one of the areas which I knew a lot of people were interested in quite fascinated by this subject but there was almost nothing um to read about it but I'd also I'd had a long standing interest in crime from when I'd been a journalist and again, I looked at the American market for true crime books and there's you know, some tremendous, um, you know, some great books on the mafia, um, brilliant research, some great journalists. And there didn't seem to be anybody doing the same thing in the UK, which was a surprise. But also, as we mentioned, the, the legal constraints are somewhat different. The legal system works a bit differently here. <clears throat> so I just thought <clears throat> there was a gap in the market. But also, it was just something that I'm really interested in doing. So as well as writing my own books, um, so I did, I did the book on Curtis Warren, as you mentioned. I then did a book on the gangs in Manchester called Gang War. Um, and I did a book with a gypsy bare-knuckle fighter, Bartley Gorman, called King of the Gypsies. But I was also getting offered books to publish in that the same area. And we published so the, the first book in the UK, the first history of the Cali Cartel, which is by an American writer, Ron Chepsuk. Oh, yeah, I'm a friend of Ron. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So, so we published his book, Drug Lords, in the UK. Um, we published a book in America about the Black Mafia in Philadelphia by Sean Griffin, which is a fantastic book, which told a completely unknown story of this criminal organisation in Philly uh, from the 1960s onwards. Uh, we published the autobiography of Stanley Williams, who was one of the founders of the Crips gang in, in LA, who was actually on death row when we published the book. Tricky, was subsequently executed. Tricky yeah. Williams, yeah. Um, so we, I was trying to sort of bring these these stories to kind of public attention. And at the same time, other publishers started to do the same thing. So there was a few other, uh, there was kind of a, a, a little sort of flurry of, of publishing in this area. And now it's become much more, I think, mainstream. The, the big publishers now are much more likely to commission books like this. But 25, 30 years ago, it's it amazing. If you wanted to read about, for example, British organised crime, Apart from a couple of the classics like the the profession of violence, which is written about the craze in the in the seventies, very very good book. There was almost nothing afterwards. It was as if crime had stopped when Reggie and Ronnie got sent to prison, <laughs> and as if the seventies and eighties nothing had happened. And um, 
I was kind of always wondering, well, what had happened? And what had happened was the drugs trade, and nobody was writing about it. Um, then Howard, uh, Howard Marks did his, he did his autobiography, which was very successful. A couple of others did. Mr. Nice. But that just covered one very small aspect of the trade, and it was a puzzle to me. It was why nobody was, was trying to tell this story. So I decided to try and do it, and I think I then realised why nobody had, because it took me six years, well, six years of interviews, but before that I'd probably done about two, two or three years of research on and off collecting material. Um, and there's still so much more to be told about about that period and and um you know if you look at the drugs trade it, when you're talking about organized crime the drugs trade is it really it is it is the, the fundamental driver of organized crime although they branch into many other areas and they'll smuggle anything and they'll steal anything um it became the biggest profit opportunity in the history of the world for yes. organized crime making yes. worthless plants more valuable than gold yes absolutely yeah. absolutely so so you can't really tell the story of crime in a modern country w- without telling the story of the drugs trade in that country. And that's kind of what I tried to do in, in drug war. How many pages is it? <laughs> a lot. <laughs> it took you six years, did you say? It took me, yep, six years. And, and when was it published? Uh, an awful lot of cooperation, 780 pages. Yeah. Um, the hardback came out a couple of years ago and the paperback's been out for the last 12 months. And have you um, got that one on audio yet? Uh, no, I haven't. So uh, that might be the next project. Yeah, it would be a long watch, read for somebody. Yes. People who watch these videos, <coughs> they like to listen to things. Sure. Yeah. So they, they, they'll follow through on the audiobook right. stuff. Which of your books are available in audiobook? Um, that's a good question. I think King of the Gypsies is available. No. Um, the Tookie Williams? No, uh, not as far as I know. Uh, so we didn't have the audio rights to that, so it might have been published in an audio book in the States. Uh, Quality Street Gang? No. We had no. a guy I had a guy from the Quality Street Gang contact me on Facebook. Right. He wanted to come on. Okay. But then we lost communication. Somehow I've not ever been able to get him on. Right. Do you know any of the prominent names of the of the guys? Well the guy there? the guy that we we published his life story was Jimmy Donnelly, who's known as Jimmy the Weed. That's yeah, it. Yeah. He he <laughs> messaged us but we lost his. Oh. If Jimmy the Weed is out there, would love to have you come on and tell Jimmy's your story. Great. Yeah, he's, a, he's, yeah. He's, he's he can tell you some stories. Can he? Oh yeah, yeah. Do you have a contact for him? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, let's arrange that. Is he is he in Manchester? Yeah, he's not had the best of health. I mean, he's, oh. he's he's not in his the first flush of youth, Jimmy. Right. So I better check how he is. Can he but, travel? Uh, um, difficult, especially okay. with COVID. Yeah. Oh dear. Oh dear. Is there anything you would like to say in conclusion then about your future projects or would you like to say anything to the people watching this? No, it's been absolutely fascinating. Oh, the only thing about future projects is I'm, I'm working on a book at the moment about um, uh, an undercover team, a law enforcement team that was set up in the 90s, which is highly secretive, which was intended to infiltrate the underworld and particularly the drugs trade. And it's what they did and how they did it. And that's never been written about before. Um, but no, we, we've covered a lot, Sean. And uh, yeah, thanks for the invite. People watching this will want to reach out to you. Are you contactable through socials? Yeah, I mean, uh, my the company website, the company's called Milo Books, M-I-L-O Books. And our website is just www.milobooks.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter, which is at Milo Pete. And anyone can send me a message there or just, just send me an email through the, uh, through the works email at Milo Books. Yeah. So all of the links will be in the description box below this video if you want to learn even more than what Peter has said today. Um, like I said in the very beginning, I read the Curtis Warren book years ago. Absolutely fascinated by his story. 
and would love to get him on the podcast if he ever gets out of prison. I know we had Frenchy on, who's been in communication with him, and he talked a little bit about that. What Check out our Stephen French interview. There was a few podcasts came up today. Michael Showers, check out that one. I'll put, I'll put all these in the description box as well, just tying in to Liverpool organised crime. So if you want to contact Peter, like he said, his, his website and, and Twitter are down there. And let us know in the comments what you thought. Huge thank you to all the new subscribers. Subscription logo is in the bottom corner of the screen. And huge thank you to everyone who's gone down into the description box and supported our socials, donation links, and everything else we're doing. So take care out there. I'm going to do an elbow bump then due to the social distancing. Thanks, Sean. <laughs> Cheers. Yeah, thanks. thanks.